Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, diversity in the boardroom. And Richard, you wrote your Defining Ideas column this week about the fact that uh, NASDAQ has made application to the SEC to impose diversity requirements on the boards of companies that are listed on the exchange, with some potential exceptions, which we could talk about in a moment. And this is not a novelty entirely. Uh, The state of California has a similar law about board diversity, which comes into effect in a couple of years. So why don't we start here, Richard? Uh, Proponents of these kinds of measures tend to say that the opposition to them is simply reactionary, that in reality, there's nothing to fear here. We know that women and minorities aren't promoted through the ranks of the business world the way they should be. It's not because they don't have the abilities. It may not even be conscious. But this is a way to rectify that, to create a more inclusive business community. And the cherry on top, this is actually better for business. This is a way of busting up groupthink on these boards. What's your response to that? Uh, It's a kind of a complicated response, but the first question is it's highly contentious as to whether or not, if you look at the rate of promotions that start to take place within corporations, whether or not there is, as is commonly claimed, a form of discrimination against women on the one hand and various minority members on the other. Uh, As far as I can tell, if you were to try and run a kind of a rigorous statistical analysis and ask yourself the sorts of questions, what things do you have to hold constant before you can make this, and then you would to discover, for example, that there are real occupational differences that start to take place uh, so that the men are more versed in various kinds of technical fields and the women are more versed in sort of soft disciplines having to do with advertisement design and so forth. You then look at the markets in these two particular areas and you discover that they have very different wage profile. And so if you're going to say that there's an inequality in wages or opportunities and you're comparing petroleum engineers on the one hand uh, uh, with essential public relations executives, on the other hand, uh, you really have to do a lot more than just compare wages. You have to control all the stuff that's going on. And and then, of course, there's always the other side, which is it's blunt to put, but I think it has to be true, is show me the money, as they used to say in one of these famous films. Uh, it's not a question of whether there are or aren't. Name a particular candidate that you believe has been systematically discriminated against, and we'll see what the reaction is. And, and what's so interesting about the report that was put forward in in this particular case is there was not a single instance of some person, either by name or by general description, who had been passed over, been treated badly under a disparate impact theory. Um, It was all basically based upon generalized statistics. And and that's an extremely difficult way to go, particularly since the statistics are not given, and you're not quite sure which way the breakups are actually going to go. Um, So, for example, if you were to take a field like, you know, a very difficult programming and so forth, and you start looking at the kinds of applicants, one of the things about tests like that is you know that they're standardized tests and measures which are extremely reliable tests of whether or not somebody can or cannot succeed at doing these kinds of things. Indeed, one of the things to note is that the entire Duke Power apparatus, which starts to talk about the uh, question of whether or not disparate impact is sufficient to establish a discrimination case, has a lot of purchase when it comes to entry-level positions for something, for example, like firemen and for policemen um, and jobs of that sort. Uh, But when it comes to these really high positions, it turns out there's no difficulty whatsoever under Duke Power. You don't give some 
somebody a test to see what they can project to. What you do is you go to your files, you take out a case that is being worked on, and ask them to solve it. And there's no way that you can say if you give them a job from a particular area that they have to solve that it's not job-related when, in fact, it is the job itself. And, and so if you can't find the, the people coming in and meet those particular standards, uh, it's pretty hard to think that it's disparate impact in any way, shape, or form. Then, of course, if one goes back and starts to look at the contretemps that arose a couple of years ago um, with Facebook and with Google on the fact that women programmers were not promoted at the same rate as men uh, because they said to have higher average. You know, uh, error rates in terms of their performance, and then you go back and you sort of check the entry-level qualifications, there actually was a kind of an affirmative action program in place. And one of the things about affirmative action programs is that they're not stable. Uh, so if you can take people in at an entry level, and they'll do okay, but one group is systematically stronger than another, if you then have to take the top half of the entire pool, the ratio is going to short, start to change. So you'll have fewer women, fewer minorities in the second round of this tournament than you had in the first, or if you're going to have the same number, they're going to have weaker qualifications. Uh, you can't avoid that particular dilemma because the entry-level qualifications that had the first group were there. And so all the affirmative action kinds of criticisms that you see under the diversity situation ignore that uh, particular fact about how the internal processes starts to work. And as you go higher and higher in the firm and you have supervisory and general responsibility, uh, the need for stronger academic and professional qualifications gets greater, not lesser, and so you're going to see this kind of skew takes place. Uh, the other point I would like to make about this is a kind of a fudge in this case. If you look at the categories, uh, one of the categories that is said to be discriminated against are Asians. Uh, that's a broad category that includes Indians, Vietnamese, Chinese, Koreans, Japanese, and so many other groups. Uh, these are high-achieving groups in the United States. And, and so one of the questions you always have to ask yourself is by putting that in there, uh, is this going to be a diversity program at all? Or are you simply going to look at your board, discover that you have large numbers of people who fall into the Asian categories, and then the underrepresented groups, African Americans, American Indians, and so forth, don't get appointed at all. So uh, this is yet a further problem of the system uh, when you have malleable categories, and you can even satisfy the categories, but you won't advance the goal. And finally, uh, diversity of opinion is much more important than diversity of race. If you have people who are conservative or liberal, uh, some people who are good at technical stuff, some people are good at marketing stuff, that's what really matters. Matters. And in, in a particular board, unless people have mutual respect for one another, uh, the ease of communication is not going to take place. And so you just have to do is to make sure that's going to happen. It may well be that in many firms, diversity works. I'm not against diversity. I'm against the mandates that are associated with it. But if it does, then the situation will proliferate voluntarily, and you won't need the enforcement mechanism that's in place. So I think the NASDAQ claim is, is pretty much overinflated, uh, and I think it's actually a dangerous precedent uh, that the SEC should resist. You mentioned that distinction there about diversity and then diversity being mandated from above. So it's one thing for a public company to make these decisions about diversity on its own. But here we're talking about the idea of a stock exchange imposing the requirement on the company with the blessing of a federal agency. If I'm running one of these companies and I don't want to play ball, and let's say I'm not going to try to skirt the requirement and be cute about it, which it does look like there's some room for in this proposal, but I want to mount a direct challenge on the very principle. I don't want to comply with it. How good is my shot if I challenge it in court? 
Well, I, I think it's a lot better in 2020 than it would have been in 2016. And that's because of the, the shift in sentiment that has taken place both publicly on the one hand and I think in the judiciary on the other. So on, on the public side, I, I think it's quite striking to see what happened in California when the vote was put on, the, when the issue was put on the table as to whether or not you repeal the um, uh, colorblind mandate and the sex blind mandate that you had built into California law for higher education. And the proposal to repeal it was supported by everybody, including the same guys who support the NASDAQ proposal, and the public sort of beat this thing down uh, fairly substantially, even though the uh, uh, no vote on this was much more underfunded than was the S vote. And I think that a lot of that's going to happen. Now, why is it going to happen is an interesting question, and, and let you give me my reaction to it. I am not against having some degree of affirmative action programs inside various universities. Indeed, when I was a short-term dean at the University of Chicago in 2001, I actually had to run one of those things. But the difficulty that you always have with these programs is, is it too much or too little? If you have private institutions running it on, on an internal basis, they're going to make the right trade-offs. If you've got a public mandate, the only thing that the mandators care about is this, and they're going to impose a much more extreme program than you would get internally. Uh, so the way in which I look at this is I would certainly, if I were California, would have voted for the colorblind situation, even though I don't think it's the ideal. But in this particular situation, where the boards can mediate against all of these things, I have much more confidence in their doing it correctly than anybody else. And why is that? Because if it turns out they go too far, uh, there's going to be an internal gyroscope, which is going to push them back a little bit. So there's going to become kind of a conscious awareness of the trade-off, and it's going to be at the margin. When you do this through a regulator, the only way you can change the situation is to have a tumultuous political battle, and it can go in either way so that the level of uncertainty with respect to what's going to be expected in two to five years is going to be very, very great. And that sort of makes it extremely difficult to do long-term planning. Uh, so I think, in effect, the Hayekian notion that decentralized control will have fewer errors than a system of deep centralized command and control economy applies to diversity as it does to everything else. So let's play this scenario out. Let's say 10 years from now, what NASDAQ is proposing has become common practice and all the exchanges are doing it. There are a bunch of state laws that look like California's. Apart from the rules themselves, how does that world look different than ours? What's the effect on business? And is there an effect on people outside of the companies? Well, look, a lot of this is going to depend upon what the changes in the composition of the workforce are. To take a very simple analogy, now suppose what you do is you have a minimum wage loan is $10 an hour, uh, but it turns out that the market wage is $15 an hour. It's a constraint, but it's not going to bind unless there's a radical shift in the wage economy because of some exogenous shock. And so it is if it turns out that as the population in the United States start to shift, occupational preferences become different, and lo and behold, that you look at the world of 2030 and you see a much larger cadre of minorities and of women in this, uh, then this thing will not bind at all because everybody will be above the constraint. Uh, but it turns out it's very difficult to know whether that's going to happen for the following very simple reason. If you're working at the middle of a distribution uh, and you get movements, it's 
pretty clear that you're going to have a huge transformation. That is, when I started law school, you know, there were four or five women in the class. They were virtually all in the top 20% of the class because there was systematic discrimination against women getting into law school. But now when you have huge numbers of women in a law school, so that they're probably 50 or even 55% of the enrollments in some particular case, um, uh, you're not going to have any trouble trying to figure out what you do in order to hire associate. But when you start getting up to the partner level and the senior partner level, it's not at all clear that the same fractions that you have in the population in the entry-level group are going to apply when you've had three further cuts, and so that you've gone down from 100 associates in the business to the last six, and you have to decide which of them are going to belong on the executive committee. And that's the problem that one always has to face in this situation. The further you go up the ranks, uh, the more difficult it's going to be uh, to simply look at averages. What you then have to do is to look at the upper tail. And if you start looking at grades and boards in virtually any of these situations, it turns out that the top 1% uh, in all of these tests, regardless of how they're formed, they tend to be male-dominated and tend to be Asian and white-dominated amongst the male group. That's the target population when you're talking about your board leaders and so forth. And so it's not at all clear how the changes in the middle of the distribution are going to influence changes that start to exist at the tip. Now, does this make a difference? Um, well, for many things, no, but for the things that really matter in terms of the direction of a company, yes, these differences really do matter, and companies sort of understand all of that, which is why it is when you start running a, a large corporation and you're trying to figure out what your staff is going to look like in 10 years, uh, immediately you start to classify those people who are going to be fast-tracked, those people who may be able to stay within the organization, those people who are probably going to have to exit in one form or another. And you don't do that in the ninth year. You do that in the first year because the training that you're going to give to various people in part is going to be a function of where you think they're going to end up. So the really tough assignments will go to those people who are projected to be leaders, and the less demanding assignments will be given to those who are going to be sort of destined to a kind of a permanent middle management. Corporations know this information, and my job as an academic is not to tell them how to run their business, but to defend them when somebody else wants to run their business for them, precisely because the closer you get to an individual pool, uh, the more salient the differences are, and the more likely it is that the people who are running the pool will have better information than the outsiders, the outsiders in this case being NASDAQ or the SEC. My final question for you, as we've talked about on past episodes of this podcast, the conservative universe has developed many more populist tendencies in the last several years that, that have in some quarters manifested as a newfound skepticism towards business, especially large corporate institutions. And part of this indictment has been the emergence of what those critics call woke capital, the idea that corporate America seems in many instances to have chosen sides in the culture wars, and it's not the side of those who've been defending them from government intrusion for years. So the attitude of a lot of those folks, you see this especially in reference to Silicon Valley, is, you know what? Gloves are off. Sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And if you're willing to have the government intrude into our affairs, we're now willing to have them intrude into yours. What's your reaction to that? 
Well, I'm not sure who we are and who they are, but the basic institution, I think, is that uh, there is in the United States a huge number of individuals who regard condescension as the coin of the realm uh, with respect to those people who are in high and public position. And they regard them as panderers, including leaders of major corporations. And many of these people are not aspirants to those kinds of positions, so it's not as though somebody who's a carpenter is deeply upset about the fact that he's not put on a, a, a corporate board. What it is is something much more intangible. It's sort of a sense of a pervasive disrespect that you have to me and the kinds of things that I have. And so, therefore, I'm going to respond to that by disliking the people who dislike me. Now, how these people feel about corporations is going to be cynical. How they feel about government is going to be cynical. Uh, the great difficulty that you have when you're trying to harness activities like that is you're not quite sure that it leads to any kind of a coherent intellectual or business type program. So I could be very resentful of corporations. Am I supposed to be resentful of them because of their arrogance when they want to appoint by merit? Or am I supposed to be resentful of them when they want to appoint by using some of these alternative criteria to come into account? And I think that as things become more dramatic, it's going to be the alternative criteria that's going to give rise to the rest. So, for example, in the University of California, many institutions, even in the sciences and math, say there's first a diversity screen that people have to go through. And if they don't pass that screen, we don't look at them for their skills in microbiology or an integral calculus. This is the sine qua non of what's going on. And the joke about it, of course, is the one way to get a flunking grade on these kinds of tests is to go back to the famous speeches of Martin Luther King and announce that the content of your character rather than the color of your skin is what should determine your success or failure. That's a failing grade. And in fact, the way these tests are run is it's not only that you have to believe in diversity, but you have to advocate it in public bodies. And so that what you do is you create a governance structure which is going to perpetually put quote-unquote woke capitalism or woke intellectualism in charge. And I share the fear about those kinds of tendencies. I think, in effect, if you're trying to talk about diversity and you look at universities and many of the fancy corporations today and you discover that the political division is 98 to 2, where the 98 to is percent is, is sort of Democrat, liberal Democrat, and you're not even sure what the other 2% is. It includes market capitalism, evangelicals of one kind or another, hippies, uh, drug kind of libertarian. Uh, this is just completely out of whack. And so this is the ultimate irony of this. If you really put this thing into place and you play it out, you can see the following situation. What you do is you get few more women, few more minorities, uh, but what you end up is getting everybody who has the same kinds of views on substance, and they all turn out to be progressives. And what progressives do, in effect, is they're prepared to undermine the power of a particular corporation by expanding its board so as to have uh, all sorts of, quote, stakeholders instead of shareholders on their operation, and they cease to be effective uh, profit-making institutions. Some people will avoid this by going private, but other people will avoid it by not coming to the United States. And one of the things that I'm very worried about these proposals, and I end up on this sober note, is if you're a foreigner coming to a different country in order to have a good investment climate, are you going to want to come to the United States? And you know that this is a serious issue because if you look at the wealth tax, yet another one of these things, one of its most ominous provisions is if somebody wants to flee the United States in order to avoid the wealth tax, they have to pay a tax of 40% of their wealth uh, measured by some particular scale. And anytime you see somebody putting limits on exit rights, and anytime you see them making the local environment so hospitable, 
uh, that people don't want to come in, you know that you're getting trouble. And do, does this matter? I'll just give you a simple comparison. Uh, how many companies in the last year have decided to move from Texas and to relocate into California? And what is happening with Tesla and Hewlett-Packard when they're moving in the opposite direction? This is a straight heads-up competition, and it turns out that in the marketplace, uh, basically free, unregulated Firms in competitive markets outperform these other situations, and I think NASDAQ is trying to make Texas look like California, when, if anything, it should try to make California look like Texas. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.